0: Well, again, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you're here, and we just want to dive right into God's Word together. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. If you don't have one with you, there should be a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. You can grab one of those and follow along that way. We're going to be starting in Ephesians chapter 4 today. Uh, we're going to be kind of jumping around to a couple different spots in the Bible today, and all that's listed at the top of your note sheet. So if you're trying to follow along, all the verses are at the top, you can use that to help yourself. Um, so... One of the things that I, was, I, I think is pretty cool about our church is how many people we have in our church that are either um, medical students or in some type of healthcare profession and touching that in some way. If you, that's you, just kind of raise your hand for a second. All the hands, if you're connected to healthcare in some way, student, active, like totally cool. This is like the place I want to get sick. Right? Like, like if something's going to happen to me, I want to, do, I want to like fall down right here. I got all these people that can help out. And so, but one of the things that if you're in the healthcare profession um, it, you take at least some form of uh, the Hippocratic Oath, right? Like whenever you're stepping into that position. And, and the basic gist of that is that uh, you are promising to, to the very best of your ability to give the best possible care to your patients, right? That's the kind of thing, the best uh, I can do for them. And, and sometimes what's interesting is you get into situations where it feels like the care that they're giving Um, is kind of extreme, sometimes even painful at times, but with the goal of still getting to the best possible place on the other side of that pain or struggle or whatever, right? That's the same way that God looks at our marriages, right? He sees us as spouses, those of us who are married, he sees us as here to care, to give the best possible care that we can to our spouses It's kind of infused in our marriage vows, right? Like for better, for worse, and so on and so on. Like it's, it's, I'm here till the end to help you, to care for you, to be with you. And we're all kind of like little mini physicians that God has given us to care for the soul of our spouse. If you're not married, he's put other people in your life where you have relationships, where you have the ability to care for their soul. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at today, that, that we're going to see how God entrusts me to care for the soul of my spouse. God, in, as, a, as a married person, or uh, God entrusts me to care for the soul of my spouse. And again, if you're not married, you can apply this to other relationships, family, friends in your life as well. So there's three primary ways, I think, that God calls us to this, that he gives us tools for this. And the first one, point number one, is checkups, right? Any good physician wants to do checkups with you periodically, and the checkups that we find in relationships is communication, right? Checkups are communication, and Ephesians 4 helps us with this, this kind of first step of preventative care, in that this, that God-glorifying communication is the best preventative care for the soul of my spouse, God-glorifying communication is the best preventative care for the soul of my spouse. So if you've got your Bible there, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil." Be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you so we see here in this passage several steps several pieces to God glorifying communication and if if you were here last spring for our marriage conference you're going to be a little bit of a repeat for you, uh, but I think it'll still be helpful so the first thing we see the first step in God glorifying communication is be honest be honest we get this from verse twenty five so in verse twenty five there it says um, Put away falsehood, right, no falsehood, and speak truth. Truth, or trust, is the foundation for all healthy communication, right? If I don't think I can trust you, then I'm not going to listen to you, right? It comes back to, can I trust you? Is there honesty here? Is there truthfulness where I'm going to buy into what you say? And so in our relationships, we want to have honest, truthful communication, but that goes beyond just not telling a lie or something like that is, am I in everything I say, am I bringing a forthrightness to the conversation? One of the kind of practical tips we give on this is um, no 100% words, right? When you're in communication, no 100% words, 100% words are like, um, you always do this. You never do that. Right? Is that true? Probably not, right? A lot of times when we use that kind of language, we're exaggerating our case to try to dig in harder and make our point. But when we exaggerate the language, it gets the other person thinking, yeah, that's not really true. I can't really trust what you're saying. And it puts a wall up. It puts blocks up between us and them. All right? So the first thing with communication is we need to be honest in everything that we say. Number two, God-glorifying communication, Keep current. Keep current. This is verse 26 and 27. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, sometimes I've heard this preached or taught or talked about in a very kind of legalistic type of way. Like, never, ever go to bed angry with your spouse. Like, never lay your head on that pillow. Okay, sometimes staying up all night to sort through it just ends up with like two tired, cranky, even more angry people in the morning. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you just need to get some sleep and talk about it tomorrow. I don't think this is like a legalistic don't ever go to bed angry. I think it's don't let your anger linger, right? Don't stay in it. Don't brew in it. Don't like get it taken care of as soon as possible. Don't just leave it laying out there where it's gonna to continue to, to cause a problem. And he tells us why here. He says, because if you do that, you give opportunity to the devil. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. Satan would love to drive a wedge in between your relationship. And the way he's going to do that is by tearing down your communication. When you stop talking, when you start communicating in a God-glorifying way, that's just the first step of him starting to tear apart at your relationship. So don't give him that foothold. Don't give him that opportunity by letting anger linger in your relationship. Number three that we see, oh, before I go there actually, one of the things that we oftentimes see as we're doing premarital counseling or marriage counseling with couples is that they'll walk into marriage, they'll walk into relationships. Um, I think it's not that they don't expect there to be conflict or they don't expect there to be a fight. So they know that's going to come at some point. But, but they're not really ready for it. They're not really prepared on how to handle conflict in their marriage. They don't know how to fight fair, right? They know how to fight. (laughs) They don't always know how to fight fair in a way that's healthy and constructive. And so let me give you five steps for fair fighting, okay? So in your relationships, in your marriage, when things get heated, five things to help you keep it on uh, track, all right? Number one is no name calling, all right? There's just not a place for that in a loving relationship, right? Like, you liar and you blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not helpful. That's not going to lead to anything positive in communication. Like, keep the names out of it and just deal with the issue at hand. Number two, no building sides. This one's a little more subtle, all right? Sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. Building sides is I'm in a fight with my spouse, and I can't get anywhere with her, so I'm going to go over here and tell my brother what happened, or tell my mom, or my dad, or my coworker, or my friend, and I'm going to build this conglomerate of people that all agree with my side of the story so then I can go back to her and say, hey, I talked to so-and-so, and they think this is blah, 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 and all of a sudden I'm trying to ramrod my spouse with this collection of people that I've built on my side, right? Not healthy not helpful, especially, please listen, if it's family, okay? Do not sour your family, your parents, your siblings on your spouse by only giving them one side of a conflict. That does not go anywhere good. Number three, no bringing up the past. If it's in the past, leave it in the past, right? If you've If you've had a conflict, if you've dealt with it, if you've forgiven it, if you've moved on, then don't bring it back up. Now, if there's something in the past that you haven't dealt with yet, then you need to deal with it. Have the conversation, put it to rest, do forgiveness and move on. But once you've forgiven, don't keep dwelling in that. That's in the past. It's not gonna help the present to keep bringing up the past. Number four, uh, no intimidation or attacks. This can come in many different versions, right? Sometimes it's verbal intimidations and attacks. I'm gonna raise my voice. I'm gonna use language I know you don't like. I'm gonna say things to hurt you. Those are all verbal intimidation techniques, verbal attacks on our spouse. It can come in the form of physical, right? I'm going to punch the wall. I'm gonna slam the door. I'm gonna drive erratically to intimidate you and make you feel scared so you'll give in to my side of the argument. This can even be physical abuse at times. Don't do that. Men, don't do that. She's not one of your boys. She is a daughter of God. You don't intimidate her, you don't attack her. This can even happen sexually. I'm gonna withhold myself. I'm not gonna give you what you want. I'm gonna use it as a weapon against you until you give in to my side. This is all intimidation and attack techniques that hinder communication in our relationships. The fifth one is no D word. What's the D word, Micah? Divorce. Don't say that word. Don't joke about it. Don't threaten it. Don't bring it up. Because the moment you do, even if it's a joke, it puts that seed of doubt in your spouse's mind Mm, maybe they don't want to be with me. Maybe it would just be easier if we call it quits. Maybe, maybe there is something better if we just weren't together. And you start sowing these seeds of doubt into your minds, and that grows, in the next conflict, the next conflict, the next conflict, and it, it goes to a place that you don't want to get to. When Courtney and I first got married, we had a long talk. Like, Divorce is not on the table. We're not doing that. We're not going there. I lived through that with my parents. Right? And if, you're, if you've been through a divorce, please hear me. I'm not trying to shame you or guilt you in any way. There is grace for that here. We are are not condemning that. I'm just saying, I think anybody who's been through one would agree it's not the best situation. And so we don't talk about that. We don't threaten it. I said, listen, we're not gonna gonna talk about divorce. Murder, maybe. Divorce, no. If you want out, you're gonna have to off me. That's the only way this is happening, right? So no D word, leave that out. That just tears down communication. Okay? If you'll stick to these five things, I promise you, you can navigate conflict a lot better. The last thing that we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is act, don't react. Act, don't react. Look at verse 31. He says, put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Besides all being sinful, those words have another thing in common. They're all reactive verbs. Right? So when you come at me when there's a conflict and you say something that I don't like, if I'm not ready to deal with that conflict constructively, then whatever's in my heart, whatever sin is built up in there just comes spewing out in anger or in slander or in wrath. And, and all of a sudden I'm attacking you and I'm into this thing because that's what I had built up and I'm just reacting to your sin against me. Instead, we need to pursue actively to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. We need to be cultivating a heart that's like Jesus, full of kindness, full of forgiveness, so that when conflict comes, because it will come, I expected a good amen there from all the married people, all right? Because when conflict comes, and it will come, I'm ready to respond with kindness and forgiveness. But I have to cultivate that in my heart first, right? That's where it starts. And the only way I do that is by keeping myself connected to Jesus. I'm not going to get that heart from myself. I have to get it from Him, His grace in me. As I walk with Jesus and the Spirit fills me with kindness, then I'm ready to let that flow out of my life in my communication. I remember when Courtney and I um, got married? We've been married for about a year when we had our first like, like major, major fight. You know what I'm talking about? And so, well, I don't, and honestly, I don't even remember what it was about. That's how it goes most of the time, right? Like a year later, you don't even remember what the fight was really about. But so we had this fight and she said something and then I said something and we just started kind of going back and forth and like we were breaking everything we just talked about. Like we were angry at each other, we were, you know, we were attacking each other and not the problem, we were dealing with all this stuff and, and we were, we definitely went to bed angry that night, all right? The sun definitely went down on some anger at the Mathis house that night. And so we're laying in bed and, our, of course, with our backs to each other, right? And, and she's crying and I'm fuming and things are just not good. Eventually, she gets so upset that she gets up and she leaves the room. She goes and she sleeps that night in the guest bedroom of our house. And um, so we go to bed. The next morning, we get, I get up and she's not there. She'd already gotten up, got ready for work and left without us talking, without us seeing each other. So I get up and she's gone and, I'm, and I didn't know what happened. I'm like, when did she leave? Did she leave last night? Where has she been all night? Like, well, I don't know where she went. Like, what's going on? And I kind of got freaked out. I was like, this is not how I want my marriage to go. So that night when we both got home from work, we sat down. And I said, listen, we can't do that again. We can't do this anymore. That's, that's not the way we're going to deal with problems. We're not sleeping on the couch. We're not getting up and leaving. We're not doing the silent treatment. We're not going to leave anger unresolved because that just gives Satan a foothold in our marriage. And she totally agreed. I wasn't telling her anything, she didn't already know. And from that night on we resolved that that's not the way we're gonna handle things. And ever since then, 15 years, nobody slept on the couch, or outside of the bedroom again, right? Like this is how we handle it. You do the communication, you do the hard work because we've come to understand that God has entrusted us to care for one another's souls. And that's a serious thing. God-glorifying communication is the best preventative care for the soul of my spouse. Now, I can see it in your eyes. Some of you here have no reference for what I'm talking about. You never saw it growing up in your home. You've never yet experienced it in your own marriage. To you, this sounds like a fairy tale or some black and white sitcom from the 50s. right? Like You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. If that's your reality, let me just start by saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's been your reality up to this point. But the good news is this, it doesn't have to be that anymore. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you will give your life to him, he can change your heart and you can get to a place of God glorifying communication. You can have a paradigm shift in the way you talk and the way you relate to one another in your relationships. It can happen, I've seen it over and over again. There is hope in Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to do to care for the soul of our spouse is surgery. Sometimes we have to go past the checkup to surgery and in, in relationships, surgery is confrontation. Sometimes we have to do confrontation. This is going to be in 2 Samuel 12 in the Old Testament. If you want to flip over there, I'll meet you there in a second. So this is where we move from preventative care to corrective care, right? Now there is a problem that needs to be addressed, and I have to confront it. I have to deal with it in some way. And so in, um, confronting sin with grace is the best corrective care for the soul of my spouse. Confronting sin, notice with grace is the best corrective care for the soul of my spouse. So in this story leading up to Samuel, 2nd Samuel chapter 12, we have two guys in this story, David and Nathan. David is King David, right? Like greatest king of Israel ever, um, man after God's own heart, like gets all the awards, right? But in this season of his life, David has gotten himself into some trouble. One morning he was up walking on top of his palace and he sees this woman. He starts lusting after her. He takes her, has an affair with her. She gets pregnant. He calls the husband home to try to deceive him and make him think that it's his. When that doesn't work, he sends him back to war and has him murdered in the midst of the battle. David was in deep with his sin to the point where he was even trying to cover it up. Then you have this guy named Nathan. Nathan was like, um, he, was, he was a prophet of God. He was one of David's trusted advisors. He was, a, he was a friend. He was someone that David trusted. And God tells Nathan to go and talk to David. Look at verse 1 in chapter 12. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children, and he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Then David, anger, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Nathan comes and he confronts David's sin. But the first thing I want you to see is look at verse 1 again. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is a great reminder for all of us that God pursues sinners. He doesn't, he's not comfortable to just leave David in his sin. He pursues sinners for reconciliation. And he's not okay, God is not okay with leaving you or me in our sin either. He is going to come after us. He is going to call us out of that. That is the heart of the gospel, my friends. What you just saw in this tank earlier, that's exactly what that was. Men who were lost and dying in sin and a God who was not willing to leave them there. And so he came and he pursued them and he sent Jesus to die for their sins and to forgive their sins and he brought him back to life and now he's reigning as king and he's ready to extend to you the same forgiveness, the same reconciliation. Your debt can be washed away. You just have to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Because God pursues sinners. But not just that. Look at verse 1 again. God uses sinners to pursue sinners. This is one of the craziest things, right? Like, he uses us who are sinful, who are broken, who do not have it all together, to go and talk to other people who are also sinful and try to help them see the light. And a lot of times when we do that, we mess it up and it gets ugly, and it's not always fun, and people get upset. And, but this is God's plan. right? If it was my plan, I wouldn't do it this way. <laughs> but this is how God does it. He uses sinners to pursue sinners. He used Nathan, a sinful, imperfect human being, to pursue the heart of David and to do soul surgery on him. This soul surgery idea I got from the book I mentioned last week uh, by Dave Harvey. And, and one thing he says in there, when he's talking about soul surgeries, he says, when you go in to do surgery on someone's soul, when you go in to confront something in their life, be careful. This is way more serious than even physical surgery. You're not just cutting someone's body, you're cutting someone's soul when you do this. We need to be delicate. We need to be gentle. We need to be gracious. We need to be wise. Let me give you a few things of wisdom from this passage on how we do soul surgery. The first thing about wisdom is we need to have a wise process, right? We need to have a process that follows what Nathan did here. Nathan's example is great. He, first of all, he waits for the right time, right? He, he waits and he goes when God says go. He doesn't just see David off on his sin and and just run up and try to fix it right away. He doesn't doesn't do it in his own power, in his own time. He waits until the right time when God says go. If you see a sin or something in your spouse that you need to confront, that you need to bring up, pray about that. Ask God for wisdom to know when to go and talk to them. When is the right time to do this? Because remember the part earlier, God uses imperfect sinners to pursue sinners. And so we need to be humble enough to ask for his help. He also had the right method. He comes to David. He doesn't start making accusations. He doesn't start pointing fingers, right? He tells him a story. He's basically asking him a question in the story. Like, hey, David, if if this happened, what do you think we should do about it? Questions are great. We say this in counseling oftentimes. A question pricks the conscience, but an accusation hardens the heart. If somebody comes in and starts pointing fingers and you did this and you were wrong and you need to, immediately we start putting up walls, don't we? It's just human nature. We're just like, no, 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 uh, not doing it. But if somebody comes in and asks us a question, Courtney's so good at this. Anytime there's something in me that needs to be pointed out, she'll come to me real gently. Hey, Micah, yesterday when you said this, did you really mean that? The other day when you did this, do you know how that made the girls feel? Did you mean for it to come off like that, and she gets me thinking about my own behaviors and my own sin and my own stuff, and then the spirit just comes and does a work and brings us to repentance and once you step into the, the operating room to do that surgery, stay with it. All right Conflict is not like run in, pop the pin, throw the grenade, and run out okay that 's not how we want to do conflict resolution in our marriage. is like, once you step into the conversation, you've got to stay there until the surgery is done. You have to be willing to walk through that with them, even when it's painful. Right time, right method, and right motive. Nathan had the right motive. He was coming because he wanted to see David come back to God. He wanted to see repentance. Later on in the passage, David finally repents, and in verse four, uh, verse thirteen rather, Nathan says, "The Lord also has put away your sin." He's like, "This is just this is exactly what we were going for, right? That you've repented, and now your sin's forgiven, and all is well." Are we going in with the right motive? You need to ask yourself this before you step into the operating room: Why am I cutting? Why am I going to go in and cut on? My spouse's soul is it really for reconciliation am i really wanting to help them get to a healthier place with god or is it for retaliation because they hurt me and i want to hurt them back gotta have a wise process the second thing about wisdom is permission Right? no good surgeon is going to start cutting on somebody without their permission, right? Like you have to sign like all these waivers and all that kind of stuff. Like, you're not just gonna step in and start cutting someone without their permission. Nathan has permission here. By his relationship with David, they have a good enough, he knows David has given him permission up to this point to come and speak truth to him. That's why he's a prophet. That's why he's an advisor. That's why David trusts him. He's given him permission to speak truth into his life. Have you given your spouse permission to speak truth into your life? Have you given someone in your life permission in your small group, in your relationships, does somebody have the right to come to you at any time and start cutting? Do they know they have that permission? Have you you said it to them? It can be scary to step into a confrontation like that if you don't know how the person's going to respond. We need a good process. We need a wise to get permission. And lastly is preparation. There's wisdom in preparation. Because again, we're imperfect sinners. We don't always do it right. So we need to prepare our hearts before we step into the operating room. So I'm going to give you five questions to ask yourself, to ask of your own heart in preparing. Is this really what I should be doing? Number one, have I prayed for wisdom? Again, just be humble seek the Lord, right? Have I prayed and asked God to help me with this? Number two, is this a pattern or a single behavior, A doctor does not start cutting on someone the very first time they show a symptom, right? Like, it has to be a recurring thing that I know needs treatment. If this is, like, the first time your spouse has ever done that, probably not the best to go in with guns a blazing. you know what I'm saying? Like, wait and see, is this a pattern of behavior that really needs to be addressed or will they kind of get it fixed on their own with the Holy Spirit? Number three, am I resolved to address one issue at a time? We don't go in and do surgery on the knee and the back and the ear all at the same time, right? Like you do one thing at a time. The same thing with your spouse. Address one sin at a time. They can't handle two or three or five. Do one. That's the same way God works with us. When you get saved and God starts changing your life, he doesn't come in and show you all of your sin at one time. We would freak out and have a heart attack. Right? Like, he shows us one thing, like, here's one thing I want you to start working on. And once we start getting that to a better place, then he shows us one more thing and one more thing. Same thing with our spouse. Work at, on one thing at a time. Number, number three or four or wherever we're at, um, am I prepared to make the smallest incision possible? when I am addressing that one sin, don't overwhelm them with examples, right? Don't come in with 20 examples of how they've, how they've sinned against you in this way, right? That's too big of a cut. They don't need all that. They need like one or two if they're hard headed, right? Like come in, make the smallest incision possible, give them some examples so that they can see it and they can repent and turn from that. And then lastly, number five, this is so key, is this a violation of God's truth or my preference? We do not do elective surgery on the soul, only necessary surgery, right? I don't get to come in and start cutting just because I don't like the way they fold the towels, right? that, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. Is there sin? Is there something that has violated God's word that needs to be addressed? As a pastor, oftentimes I end up at the hospital with people in different scenarios. A lot of times before they're going in to surgery, it could be a knee or it could be a back or it could be a whatever. And I, it's been interesting to me to see all the different safety precautions that they take to make sure that the surgery is gonna go well, right? So they, they ask you like, so what's your name? What's your date of birth? What, what are we doing today? Can you point to the body part? Like they, they, and not just one person, like 50 people ask you this, like all these different questions to make sure they're getting it right. And then to top it all off, they'll come in sometimes and they'll actually take like a magic marker or something. And they like start writing like this leg, not this leg. You know what I'm saying? Like, and then the doctor comes in and initials it, like the whole thing. Why are they doing that? Because at some point in the past, somebody cut the wrong leg, right? Can you imagine going in for knee surgery and then coming out like, and now both knees are messed up because they cut the wrong one? Listen, we don't want to make the wrong cut on our spouse. We don't want to cut the wrong area. We don't want to do the wrong procedure. We don't want to go in thinking we've got it all figured out and we're going to handle it. We need to be humble and wise and prayerful and let the Lord show us what it is. Remember, this is a soul you're doing surgery on. Be careful. Be careful. Even if you know there's a problem, make sure you make the right cut before you start. Otherwise, you can create even more damage than is already there. When was the last time you cut on your spouse? When was the last time you did surgery when something needed to be confronted? When you did that, did it bring healing? Was it helpful or was it hurtful? Some of you have been cutting on each other Carelessly for years. And God's calling you to be better, wiser, more gracious surgeons in your relationships. Be full of grace. Confronting sin with grace is the best corrective care for the soul of my spouse. And then lastly, number three, the third thing that we're called to do as soul surgeons is rehab. Sometimes, even after the surgery, we need some rehab. We need some ongoing care, right, to help us get back to where we need to be health-wise. Romans chapter 7, go ahead and flip over there. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 7. I've I've done some different work with addiction ministries and stuff before, and addicts have this saying. They'll oftentimes say, once an addict, always an addict. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, I'm not sure that's always true. I've seen Jesus do some miraculous things in the lives of people. But I'll tell you one area that I know it's true, and that's when it comes to sin. In our lives, in our hearts, We are sin addicts. We keep wanting to go back to it. Let me show you. Look at verse 19, Romans chapter 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the Apostle Paul writing, right? The dude who was like superstar of the early church, is here writing at the end of his ministry, the sin I don't want to do, I keep doing. Why? Because no matter if you're a Christian or not, we still sin. We still have a sin nature inside of us that is fighting against the spirit and is trying to win and trying to draw us back into the sins that so long kept us chained. He says it right here, sin dwells in me. That sin nature, it doesn't go away just because you say yes to Jesus. Now you just have something better to fight it with than you did before. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Look down at at chapter 8, verse 1. Paul goes on, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What he's saying there is listen, if you have faith in Christ, your sins are covered. They are covered by the blood of Jesus, they are covered by his grace, and you are freed from all of it. And you don't have to live there anymore, you don't have to go back there anymore. All of it. For all of eternity. Gone. But sometimes we forget that. And sometimes sin starts to creep back into our hearts and therefore also back into our marriages and our relationships. So, how do we do rehab? How do we do care in the midst of this? Number one is this preach the gospel to your spouse, preach the gospel to your friend, to your neighbor, to your coworker, like whoever it is, man, just keep telling them how much God loves them and how good the gospel is and how much grace can cover their sin. And we don't have to live there anymore. We need to remind each other of this truth constantly. Not only do you need to preach the gospel, number two, you need to demonstrate the gospel. We need to apply grace to the sins of our spouse to the sins of that person who hurt us. Because guess what? Sometimes we're the sinner who's hurt them and we need the same grace. So I need to remind them that there is grace and then I need to show them that I'm willing to give grace. This is the heart of rehab. This is the heart of just ongoing exchange of grace in the relationship. And that same grace that heals us is the same grace that grows us. Look at Titus 2. I'll put this on the screen for you. Verse 11 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people His who, for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. He says, it, "Grace comes and it trains us; it works on us to renounce ungodliness, to live in godliness. It comes in; it changes our hearts, it changes our desires, it changes our life. We just heard testimony of that earlier." And it says that how long is it, I oftentimes get this question, Mike, how long is it going to take? Like, I've been a Christian for a while. I'm still struggling with this sin. I can't get past it. Like, how long is it going to take for grace to get rid of this? Um, right here he says uh, that we're waiting for his appearing. So in other words, the rest of your life, okay, until you go home to see him or he comes back to find you, you're going to be working on this. Grace is going to be working on you to grow you in godliness. We don't ever get there, this side of heaven. We need the Holy Spirit to continue to, as it says here, to purify for himself a people. This is how the Spirit works. The Spirit comes, he lives inside of you, and he starts working through grace to purify your heart, to change your desires, to change your behaviors, to change your intentions. And slowly but surely, we start incrementally moving more and more towards Jesus. And then when we see him face to face, we will be completely healed of sin and made perfect like our Savior. The lowest, scariest, most delicate time in our marriage happened about three months in. When we got married, Courtney did not know that I had a major problem with lust and pornography. And one night she was out and I was looking at some things on the computer that I failed to delete. And the next day she found them. And she confronted me on it. And I just bold-faced lied to her. And she believed me, hesitantly, but believed me because she wanted to believe the best in her new husband. And by the end of that week, I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I had lied to my wife. It was eating me alive. And so I came and I told her not only had my sin blew up our marriage, but now I'm lying to my brand new bride. And she was hurt and she was wounded and she was broken and, it, and rightly so. And that was all on me. But within a day or so she came and she forgave me. She said, I'm not going anywhere. And she agreed to help me work on my sin, to help me work through this issue together. And the next, the next two or three years were painful for both of us. We did a lot of soul surgery over that time. Some of it well, some of it not so well. But we kept working through it. And eventually God started to bring victory slowly but surely. Truth and grace started to win and sin started to fade. But the real turning point the point where it really clicked was actually not the surgery, it was the rehab. It was when God's grace finally started working on me and I saw the the goodness and the, the love and the blessing of Jesus taking my sins and I started to love my savior more than I love my sin. That's when things changed. That's when it happened when grace finally took over a bigger spot in my heart than my desire for that sin. And I'll just be honest with you, today, there's still temptation. I'm not gonna pretend like just because you get victory over a sin, temptation goes away. But even when that comes, I get to return to grace. Grace. I get to return to a God who says, you know what, I'm going to help you with this. The Holy Spirit's stronger than this. You don't have to give in to that. You can walk away. But I don't think I would have ever, well, I'm not sure I would have ever gotten there if Courtney hadn't stood there beside me and cared for my soul in that season of rehab by asking the hard questions making the necessary cuts, and then continuing to shower grace on me as I was struggling and dealing with sin. Caring for the soul of your spouse is often hard and painful, and just to be honest, a never-ending task. But on the other side of it, God is glorified. And he brings restoration, and he brings healing, and he brings reconciliation. And you, with them, get to experience his grace in a way that you never have. Living in grace is the best ongoing care for the soul of my spouse. This is where we have to live, Christians. This is where we have to live, followers of Jesus. Lives of grace ongoing, repetitive, never-ending, exhaustive grace for the soul of our spouse. God entrusts me to care for the soul of my spouse. If you're married, he's entrusted that to you. If you're not, I can almost guarantee you he's put some people in your life that need you to help care for their soul too. And everything we've talked about applies to that as well. But we have to be willing to step into that. We have to be willing to take that role. All the skills that we talked about, all these different things, they're all important. They're all valuable. But they're all nothing if they don't start from and are rooted in grace. If I'm trying to do all this without God's grace at the heart of it, it will go badly. It all starts there. God's wonderful, life-changing, glorious grace that he gives us through our faith in Jesus Christ. If you need to put your faith in him today, do that right now. As I pray, trust in Christ. Let him change your life with grace. If you're already there, let's pray and let's ask him to continue to flood our hearts with his glorious grace so we can be all that he's called us to be. Why don't you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord. We thank you, God, for for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you've changed our lives, that you have saved us in the midst of our sin, because you are a gracious and loving God. Thank you for using sinners like us to help reach and love and give grace to sinners. Like us. Lord, you use the weak. You use the broken. You use the the imperfect to manifest your glory, to, to show your power, to give more and more grace to the world. Lord, help us. Help us to marvel at you and your glorious grace and let it change our hearts and our marriages and all of our relationships for your glory. Lord, we are here for you. We praise your name. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.